Well, as you all know, um, we returned from the TCS senior trip where we traced the footsteps of the, the Apostle Paul. And, and I have something on my heart I want to share this morning that, that really, came out of, uh, really came out of that trip. While there were, uh, we had to see all kinds of churches and many different types of people uh, that were there, many of which uh, called themselves Christians. You could see all kinds of pagan temples that were abandoned, no longer uh, in, in practice, all different types of symbols, little idols, um, some still active idols that people used, and, and even a Muslim or two while, while we were there. When we were in Italy, of course there's the Catholic Church in Rome, even the Vatican itself. Um, to give you a flavor of all the different types of, of people we encountered. Um, there was a guide in Italy who was a Protestant Lutheran who worshipped with an ecumenical Catholic congregation. I never really figured out how to reconcile that in my mind. A follower of Luther who was protesting the Catholic Church, worshipped with the Catholic Church that declared her a heretic. I'd, didn't figure that one out. A tour manager who was born a Christian, but doesn't really have much to do with it now. In Athens, there was the Greek Orthodox Church, claimed by 95 plus percent of the country. There was a guide there who was a, who was a free evangelical. I asked her what that was, and she really couldn't describe it to me. I know what a free evangelical is, but... but um, I don't know whether her, her definition was different. There was a tour manager who was a non-practicing Greek Orthodox, but who lit a candle on Sunday every now and then, he said. We got to see a couple of dead popes behind glass, real bodies with wax uh, faces over top of them. There was the option to, to, uh, to stop at, and see the skull of Titus, for a blessing and good luck, it was optional. I don't know that anybody took the option up, but but it was it was there. There were monks, monasteries, elaborate churches, and beautiful paintings. There were great works of art, symbols of power, the keys of the kingdom, supposedly given from Christ to. To Peter, representing the authority, the papal authority of the Catholic Church, there was not one throne of Peter, but two thrones of Peter, one in Peter's church and one in, in Paul's church in, in Rome. Every place we went saw all of those things, but there was one thing conspicuously absent, the gospel. Everywhere we went, no mention of it. Whenever it was mentioned, you would see there was one place that we went that there was a beautiful, ornate, um, I mean, gold overlaid, you know, th- I mean, you, just, you, you just sit there and marvel at the intricacy that, that, that a machine could even make something so, so beautiful, much less human beings several hundred years ago. This beautiful thing with candles and, and right at the center, at the front, which was the front of the church, was a, was a, 
were, were velvet curtains, embroidered curtains that, that we were told symbolized the, 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 the doorway into heaven. And the part of the, the sanctuary that we, were, that we were standing in symbolized heaven on earth. It was the earthly kingdom. And, and that once a year, the, the priest from the Orthodox Church would, would go into these, these uh, two doors, these two velvet doors, and behind there, that was symbolizing heaven. Of course, those doors were always closed, the curtain was always pulled except for that, that one day a year. And on the left-hand side of that, of that door was a portrait of Mary. And on the right-hand side, equal with Mary, was the portrait of Jesus. Mary being the co-redemptrix that she played a part in redeeming um, those who were there. There were crosses everywhere, but crosses that weren't empty. Jesus was still on those crosses because that sacrifice of Jesus in, in that church and Catholicism and their mind is not finished. It's still going on. Jesus is still being sacrificed every time the Mass is, is, is announced. All kinds of emotions go through, through my heart stricken with grief, in some places unbelief, uh, blown away and um, anger of deception. But I think if I would summarize the, the whole experience, it was just what was absent. The soul-saving, life-changing, sin-conquering, hell-delivering gospel was absent. Nowhere to be found. Many buildings called churches, many symbols that represented Christ, many people who took the name Christian, but the fundamental ingredient that makes it all real wasn't there. I was grieved. I witnessed to anyone who would hold still. I couldn't tell you. Couldn't spend the rest of the time I had with you this morning recounting the, the witnessing opportunities, some of which lasted over an hour with with certain people that, that just like if I would be talking to you about about the gospel, you know, you would understand. You would have you would have some point of orientation to where 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 I could immediately take you to. I could assume that you understood certain things about who Jesus was and, and what he'd accomplished and, and, and who you are. And, and five minutes into the witnessing, you, you would just you would just realize that there was there was no orientation at all. There was there was no map. There was nothing. I mean, you, you had to go back to you know basics, if if you will. Um, Greed. I witnessed. I, I preached the gospel. Preached the gospel to our group who and others who were listening in. Several guides and people from other groups. Uh, in the Vatican itself, right in front of St. Peter's Basilica, I could see the Pope's window, and I was sitting there preaching the gospel. I was emboldened to remind myself that, and you, that no matter what we have or what we try to do, if we lose sight of the gospel, we have absolutely nothing. Nice clothes, nice structure, Nice sound, nice music, nice singing, 
We can create beautiful things with our hands. But if we don't have the saving power of God, if that is not the, at the center of our preaching, at the center of our church, at the center of our Christian lives, at the center of our walks, we are miserable and wretched and empty and empty people. And I would say that if you could trace back some of those churches or some of those people, there was a point in time when, when it may not have been that way. The gospel, the simple grace of God that comes through the work of Christ alone, that's available to you through faith alone, all because of God's mercy was, was there and somewhere it fell by the wayside. If I had to summarize the whole idea, I would say a real Christian, the genuine church, is not named by a denomination, but it's centered on the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. And I'm, I'm moved to take you to the book of Galatians this morning, so I want you to open there. Galatians chapter 2. If my memory serves me correctly, I'm going to share with you a passage that was the, one of the first memory verses that, that I ever had. It's funny how we, we like to learn, we like to go beyond where, where we've been, we like to add knowledge, we, we're, we're even commanded by God to, to strive to understand Him more, to renew our minds, to to grasp the, the deep things of God and the great doctrines of the faith. But, but, but it's funny how you find yourself going back to bedrock, coming back to the simple things. And I think Galatians chapter 2 does that for, for me and hopefully for you. Because Galatians chapter 2 is going to give us a passage to help us to see how, how to avoid this danger that I just got done describing to you, and also how to live daily as a believer in what Christ has accomplished for us. I think the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatian church, is perfect because, because Paul is writing to a group of Christians who are in danger of abandoning the gospel. Now, now I'm not saying that any of you in here that I fear that you're in danger of abandoning the gospel, so that's why I'm preaching this to you. But don't be fooled that, that, that it would never be a possibility for us to get off track and move the, move the, the point of the, of the, the needle just, just to click. And, and then before too long, you can get really, really far away, whether that is as, as an individual or, or as a church. Paul is writing this letter. He's calling them back to the heart of God's work. And you know the letter to the Galatians in chapter 1. It's a great place to start if you're, if you're witnessing to, to Mormons who come knocking on your door because Paul speaks about angels. He says, if, if anyone proclaims to you another gospel, even if it's a gospel that's supposedly brought by angels, it's, it, it's no gospel at all. And, of course, Mormonism claims that very thing. In chapter 1, Paul tells them that he's amazed. He's amazed 
that you are so quickly turned away from, from God who called you for a different gospel, another gospel, which is not another gospel at all, he quickly, he quickly says. And I read that and I, and I ask myself the question, I wonder, and I know this is hypothetical and, and, and God truly can't be amazed in the sense that he would be surprised by anything I do or anything you do because God knows all things, past, present, future, even knows what will, how we'll respond to, to the truth this morning. But just, just go along with me. I, I asked myself the question, I, I wonder if God's amazed at how quickly I forget things that he's told me over and over. How quickly I turn from grace to trying to pick up the shovel and the pick myself and, and go at it. And the Apostle Paul says he's amazed, he's blown away at the Galatians, who so quickly turned from God for another gospel. And so then he begins to write, and he establishes that there's only one true gospel. And turning from it is equated to turning from God. I mean, don't miss that. He says, I am, in chapter 1, in verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ, to a different gospel. He equates turning to a different gospel as turning away from God himself. These two things aren't aren't separate. It is God's gospel. The gospel is God. It's it's the good news of what what he has accomplished through, through Christ. And so he establishes the message, the authority of the message, the source of the message in the rest of Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of, of Galatians is he defends the source is from God, not man. He talks about 14 years that he went up again to Jerusalem after he went into the desert. and He spends a considerable amount of time just laying out or diagramming how he received the message that he gave to the Galatians, his early days as an apostle. And he even reminds them how he was saved. To, to, to lend credence to this gospel. This, is this, this, this message that I proclaim to you is not one of many. It's, it's the only one. And, and it didn't come from men. It didn't come from me. It came from God himself. And, and even, the, even the, the elders that were in Jerusalem, even the very disciples that walked with, with Christ, they confirmed. They didn't say that I had a different gospel. They said, yes, this is the gospel you're proclaiming. Paul, the same gospel that we got from Jesus himself. And then he points to his own salvation. I mean, he says, he reminds them how he was saved as a persecutor of the church and a persecutor of this very gospel that he believes. And he talks to them about the ruin of the Judaizers who denied the gospel. And then he ends with this story. He even includes a story about he, how he rebuked Peter. The Peter the Great, you know, proclaimer of the gospel on the day of Pentecost. He includes this story in... In chapter two, about how he rebuked Peter. You remember that story when he wouldn't he wouldn't separate. He separated from Paul and from from the Gentiles. He says, "I even rebuked Peter, a genuine disciple, one who walked with Christ, the one who proclaimed the gospel at Pentecost, a genuine believer, because his actions betrayed the gospel." That's how important. That's the validity of this gospel that I proclaim to you. So, and I marvel. That so quickly, so easily, you've turned away from God and that message to 
to something different that you think is the gospel that is no gospel at all. And after telling this story about the rebuking of, of Peter and and his sermon to Peter, basically, and anyone else who would listen about how, in verse 11 of chapter 2, about, about how he withstood Peter to his face because he, he was to be blamed because he was mingling the law in with, with the gospel. And he preaches this sermon and then he comes to this verse. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through Fill in the blank. The law? The priesthood? Churches? Indulgences? Sacraments? Prayers? If righteousness comes through any of those things, then Christ died for nothing. It literally says. Christ died in vain. It means if salvation comes through those things or those things are any part of salvation, then Christ died for nothing. And in that one verse, Peter gives me and you two anchors that keep you centered in the gospel. And the first is what justification has accomplished. The first is what justification has, past tense, present tense, future tense, what it has accomplished, what is finished, what is completed. When I was first saved, I was sitting in the home of another Christian in a Bible study, and my pastor was there, and several others was a small group, and he was going around the room, and he asked everybody their favorite verse in the Bible, and I don't even know how long I'd been saved. It was, it was a very short period of time, and I really didn't know what to say, but I just finished memorizing Galatians 2.20, so when he came to me, you know, you know how it is, you're in a circle, and somebody put, what's your favorite memory verse, and you say, and what's your favorite memory, and then you start counting, okay, and in four more individuals, he's going to point at me. So what am I going to say? You're already thinking. Because you don't want to look stupid. Yeah, I've been there, done that. You know, I've been there in that and look stupid as well. So he, I just got done memorizing Galatians 2.20. Yeah, what would you say? Here, John 3.16? I don't know. I said Galatians 2.20. And I really had no idea at that point how on target I really was. Galatians 2.20 in my opinion, is likely one of the clearest verses in Scripture that, that, that describe a life centered on the gospel. And Paul begins 
by focusing on what justification has accomplished. Not what justification started. Not what justification will add to your effort and your work as you live the Christian life. What justification has accomplished. Now, now notice in your English translations in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice it's, it's past tense. Notice it doesn't say I will be crucified with Christ. I am being crucified with Christ, as is we sometimes think of we die daily. It says I have been, seemingly past tense, and there's, a, there's an aspect of past tense. It's past, it's finished, it's done, and that's significant. It's significant because it provides for us the ground on which we, which we stand, and that ground is firm. How firm a foundation, you saints of the, of the Lord. The word in the English here seems past tense. I have been crucified with Christ, but in the Greek it's actually perfect, which means that something has taken place in the past, and it has ongoing results. Jesus died, you were, I'm crucified with Christ, Christ was crucified in the past, and, and there were benefits that were applied to you, and those benefits have ongoing results even, even today. You weren't there when they crucified your, your Lord, per se, physical body, you didn't see it, but Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That, that took place, something that happened, and the results still stand today for me is what he is saying, even though that took place a long time ago. The benefits of the cross had been applied to him, and those benefits are his today. And those benefits will go on and on and on. That's what Paul is communicating. And one of the fundamental differences between what Paul says here and all of those churches and people that I mentioned that we met on the senior trip is, is that they don't see this as a past work. As, a, as something finished or complete. They think Christ's death and sacrifice is necessary. Or if you walked up to them and said, your salvation is by works. They would say, it's not by works. It's by grace. Jesus died on the cross. It, the death of Jesus is, is necessary. But what they would mean by that is he initiated the process. He made it possible. He didn't finish it. He didn't complete it. He didn't perfect it. You understand the difference? He made it possible to start the process. But then, after Jesus initiates the process, then you take the sacraments, or you live in a certain way, or you do certain things, and all of those things complete your justification. In their minds, justification is, is not God crediting the work of Christ to your account at the moment of salvation. It's a process where it's initiated by Jesus and His work, but then you progressively become more and more justified, more and more righteous. That's the whole idea of purgatory or purgatory, even as we talked, right? So Jesus has to initiate the process, and then as you take the Mass or the sacraments or the prayers or, or whatever it is, you become more and more justified. Well, guess what happens if you die before you, before you reach the goal? Well, you've got a gap there, right? Well, God just can't overlook that. 
So you've got to go to a place called purgatory so the remaining sin can be burnt off and you can be made perfect or fit for heaven. And then you, and you're able to go there. Finishes the job of purification that you failed to do on earth. Paul says the gospel is, is good news. He brought this up to Christine's homegoing. Because news is something that has already taken place. And I mentioned the fact that when we turn on the news, sometimes we don't always hear news, right? I wish we heard news every time we turned on the TV. I mean, accurate, fact-based, dependable journalism without bias. Well, let's say somebody is even, you can find a channel that's, that's unbiased or somebody that's, that strives to be unbiased. I don't know if you can ever find somebody who's truly unbiased. But even if you could, you know, there's the weather forecaster there, right? Is he telling you news? No, he's not telling you news. We lament about him all the time because sometimes he's, he's wrong. Whenever this is a funeral. But the gospel is good news. It's news because it's something that's already taken place. And Paul says, here's news. It's not something that a forecast will happen. It's not something that will take place. He says, news, I am crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. It's a done deal. His life for mine. And in context, Paul has been arguing with the Galatians against any attempt to turn to the law as a means to be right with God. Peter, that's why he rebuked him. He was mingling, Peter believed the gospel, and he was mingling the law in there with it. He's been saying, how can the law be applied to somebody who's dead? And he shouts the truth of justification. I'm not just dead so the the law is no longer applied to me. But I'm crucified with Christ. Look, if you will, at verse 18. He says, For if I build again, if I add back in those things which I destroyed, if I add the law back into Christianity or embracing Christ, I myself am a transgressor because all the law does is condemn me. It doesn't make me righteous. It just reveals my unrighteousness. The law doesn't help you in any way, shape, or form. But look at verse 19. For through the law... For I through the law died to the law. Meaning, as I looked into the law, as the law was applied to me, it condemned me to death. It only showed my worthiness, my sinfulness. And through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. There's no hope in the law. Here's where there's hope. I have been crucified with with Christ. The payment has been made on the cross. The word justification or justified is used five times in this, in this section. Three times in verse 16, once in verse 17. Noun and form in verse 21. Verse 16 is the first time Paul uses it. And then he develops as the central theme of his, of his letter. Real Christianity centered on justification by faith alone. What makes Christianity fundamentally different from any other religious system is the doctrine of justification. Period. 
me say it this way. The fundamental difference between the message of the Bible and all the other Gospels or good newses that are out there is the truth that God would reconcile Himself to man through justification, through the cross, through faith alone. One of the witnessing opportunities I had was with a, with a math professor, college math professor from Vancouver, British Columbia. And after a while, of, we sat down together at dinner, and he was there, and niceties and introductions and, and all of that. He's a logical fellow. We tried to witness to an engineer or a math professor. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be, the formula's got to be there, and he's all hung up on the formula. Well, you know, one person says this, and, you know, and how can we really know? And there's so many religious texts that are out there. What about all the other religions? I mean, what about the Muslims who were born into, into Islam and that was all the chance that they ever had and they've never heard the gospel, you know, all of those things. You know, and every one of those, they're always talking about somebody else. They're not talking about themselves, right? What about the pygmy in Africa? Well, what about you, right? You're not a pygmy in Africa. Who do you, where do you stand before God? Is the real, but, but, you know, we're, we're doing all of those things. And, and he says, what about all the other religions? They, they're all the same. And man, there was the open door. Are they all the same? So have you ever actually looked at all the other religions in the world? I would say that you're right, there are many out there, but, but they, if you look at all of them, they really only boil down to two ways. There's really only two. There's only two systems. One that says you must do something to render yourself favorable to God to reach Him whether that's going to Mecca, praying five times a day, doing the sacraments, spinning the prayer wheels, making the rice sacrifices, whatever it is, you must do something to render yourself favorable to God. You must do something to reach God. And, and you can put all the systems out there in that category, and that's one. But the message of the Bible stands alone. The gospel says just the opposite. The gospel says that God came to us when there was no way to render ourselves pleasing to Him and He made a way Himself to reach us and has offered that work that was through the cross is offered by faith alone. All religions have their promise of good news, but Paul says, I marvel that you turned away from the one true God and His gospel, because those aren't gospels at all. Is it good news to you that Jesus initiated the process, but then you take over from there? I mean, how many of you in here embraced Jesus and then from that moment you would say, okay, I'll take the wheel and I'll take whatever my record is? Anybody in here would, would be takers on that gospel? I'd be dead today. There's no taker. Throw the gospel out. You want to do it yourself? I mean, seriously, think about if you would stand before God today and give an account if your good works really would outweigh your bad works. You, you, you want to take that route? Is that good news? That's bad news. You know what the good news is? 
that there's no way that you could render yourself favorable to God. And there's nothing about you that would render you favorable to God. But in spite of that, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. That's the gospel. He came to you when you couldn't come to Him. He convicted you whenever you weren't convinced or convicted. He showed you what to believe in. He, even in His mysterious providence, sent someone to you to witness to you, or maybe even had you in a church service, or maybe even placed you here today. And then He accomplished the work. And the two, Jesus said many amazing things. God says many amazing things. Two that just stick out in my mind, and I've shared one with you before at Jesus' baptism. Right? Jesus goes to the baptism. John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said, No, do this, John. It's got to fulfill righteousness. And what does God say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's the record. God is completely satisfied with His Son, even though He's not satisfied with us. And then what does Jesus cry from the cross? It is finished. It is accomplished. So the record of the perfect life that you need to get into heaven, God declares He is perfectly, completely satisfied with His Son and the sin, the debt that you and I owe to God because we're not pleasing to God, Jesus declares with His own lips from the cross as the God-man, it has been fulfilled. It has been accomplished. It's done. And that's the gospel. The gospel is grace alone. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. God justifies. We don't justify ourselves to God. And that's why it's truly good news. Don't be scared by the term justification. It's a, it's a term borrowed from the law courts. You understand it. Um, you, it's, it may not be a best example, but you think about it even with your... Um, even when you're typing papers, you know, you're, you're being justified to the margin that's there. Biblically, it's a judicial term. It means to declare someone righteous or, or innocent. And when we talk about the margin that we're, that we're compared to, we're compared to God's standard, not our own works not the works of somebody else. And when we're compared to God, we're all incongruent. We're so far from the bar, it's indescribable. It, that's what the Bible means when it says we fall short of the glory of God. And in justification, God looks to Christ, His character, and then declares us righteous on that basis. Not on our the basis of our works or our life, but on the basis of Christ and in His life. You don't become righteous through works. It's a judicial action whereby we're pardoned and then treated, not just as innocent, not just as forgiven, but we're treated as righteous. We're called saints. Any of you in here comfortable taking on that term? Apart from Christ? I'm not. Everybody understands justice has to be served. We don't like it whenever justice is not served. One name that 
if you if you have any age on you, you'll you'll remember O.J. Simpson. What comes to your mind? He got away, right? Whenever you even modern times we were we were flying back, um, it, it irks me that there was a that there was a commercial airliner shot down over Ukraine by Russia, and nothing's been done. And you sit there, does that not boggle your mind? You say, justice has got, somebody's got to pay for that. Now put that in terms of your salvation. In our trial against God of heaven, we've committed treason against the Creator. It's, it's not a question of our guilt or the evidence. We're, we're proven guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt. And, and yet in justification, we're not only acquitted of crimes, but we're declared by the judge as righteous. And that doesn't seem just which is where the cross comes in. One of God's choice children. We're fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. We have full standing as a favored son because his only son stood in our place and absorbed the wrath. So justice was, was paid. It just wasn't paid out to you. It was satisfied. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. God, the record of, of Brian's sin as of September 1995, can you, can you pull it up? I have no record. As far as salvation is concerned of Brian's sin, in fact, I have no record of the old Brian. He, he died. There's only the record of my son in his place. How about the list of future sins he'll commit next week or the week after? The court has no record of that. Those records have been transferred to the office of Providence, filed under Romans 8.28. Those sins, however grievous to me and painful to him, are paid for and will now only work for his sanctification. Life centered on the gospel is anchored in what justification has accomplished. But it's also an everyday reality. Let me give you the second one quickly. It's present faith and justification, justification's continued work. What has been accomplished? But that work continues. See, that's the fundamental flaw. Catholicism or otherwise, they confuse justification and sanctification. They say justification is a process. The Bible says justification is a judicial declaration by God based upon what Christ has done. But then, of course, sanctification happens. But now your sanctification is worked out on the basis of that you're secure, you're in Christ, versus not secure. And justification has a continued work. Look at what Paul says. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ which lives in me. And the life I now live. Uh, now he's talking about something going on. Christian life doesn't remain in the grave. It's alive by the power of Christ. And we're associated with Christ on the cross. And the power by which... We were once bound to sin. We've died to that power. And while a believer can sin, sin is viewed as no longer your master. Justification has power in your ongoing life. It doesn't control you like it did before. You were alive to sin and dead to God. Now you're dead to sin and alive to God. Paul says. It reminds him of that. 
Having died with Christ, we also live with Him. Yet it's not me that lives, it's Him. It's by His power today. That's, that's the present part. And just as sin was the power in us that operated our lives prior to conversion in the new order, the risen Christ is our power. And the life I now live, I live by faith. I live by faith in what the sacraments provide. I live by faith in what the priest declares as far as absolution. I live by faith in the hopes that a prayer will, whenever I spend it, spend it is going to do something. Is that what Paul says? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in what I'm going to do? No. Faith in the Son of God. And not just in the Son of God, but in the fact the Son of God loved me and He gave Himself for me. So even your present faith is in what Jesus has done. And when you sin, where do you run? To the advocate with the Father, right? Isn't that what even John says? My little children, I'd have you that you sin not. But if you do sin, you have an advocate in a little box with a curtain, and you tell him all your secrets and sins, and then he says something to you and tells you to go do something in order to prove that you're very serious. No, my little children, I'd have you that you sin not, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our propitiation. There's the satisfaction. God's satisfaction is in His Son, not in what you do. Faith in what justification has accomplished. Faith in the power that is now operating in you by new life. As well as other religions, people, and churches, even those who name Jesus. have no power because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and sanctification. You can't get to God without His work and you can't become more like Christ without His work. The good news is that Jesus declared from the cross It's been finished, it's been accomplished, it's done. You can't add to that or take it away. But you can believe. You can place your faith in Christ and His work. If you do that, you'll be saved. And the power to live every day of your life. You won't do it perfectly, but whenever you don't, where do you look? You look back to the one who said, it is finished, the one who was on the cross. You can believe. You can't work. But you can believe. By faith. Trust. And God, the Bible says, will reckon that faith as righteousness. Means that 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 transaction, that belief, that trust upon what He has done will be the very means that the credit of Jesus' life and the substitutionary death can be yours. And apart from that, there's a great gulf, a great chasm. Your sin that separates you between you and God. You've seen the picture. You on one side and God on the other. Great chasm between the two. Trying to illustrate for us how to get to one side or the other. There's a bridge, there's a cross that's laid down across it, right? You come by the way of Christ, His work, and His work alone. And that's faith. Let's pray.
I don't know your heart. don't know what you're trusting in. But I can tell you with all confidence in eternity that if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus alone, you'll never get it. You'll never get there. And I can also tell you with full confidence that if you will but believe, if you will but turn to Christ, God will never put you to shame. Full forgiveness can be yours. Father, as we come before You, and we thank You for just reminding us of simple truths. Thank You, Lord, that no matter how noisy things get, no matter how distracted, no matter how difficult, we always have a place to run back to as believers, which is the cross. Jesus, who He is and what He's done. And Father, thank You that no matter how far away we get from You, we can come back to You, to that same place, to the cross. And Father, thank You that no matter how big sinners we are or what we've ever done, how wicked, how long we've lived in sin, there's an invitation to come to the cross while it is yet day to day. I pray, Father, you would remind all of us of that. Cleanse us and forgive us. Save today, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.